podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. So we've got an exciting one this week. Uh, what are we speaking about, Jane? Uh, this week, we are speaking about worker well-being and healthy workplaces. And we are talking to Dr. Kevin Teo, who specializes in that area, particularly in, with healthcare workers. Right, that's exciting. I think there's um, there's a lot to learn about well-being in general, and I think the roles that organizations play in, in worker well-being are, are really interesting. So I'm sure we will learn a lot of good stuff. That sounds great. Let's get started. Okay, so here we are in the main body of this podcast, and today we are speaking to Kevin Teo, and we're going to be speaking about healthy workplaces. Um, before we get into that, though, Kevin, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and say a bit about your background and maybe some of your research and your interest in this area? Uh, of course. Hi, James, and hi, Jane, and thank you for the invite, and hello, everybody. So my name is uh, Dr. Kevin Teo. I'm an occupational health psychologist and a lecturer in organizational psychology at Birkbeck. So really what that means is I'm interested in how workplaces are designed, how they're organized, how they're managed, and what impact that has on the, the mental well-being of individuals in the workplace. Um, and, and more generally, basically, what I'm interested in is, is um, not so much the individual, but really the, the wider system and how individuals cope within that system, how they're influenced by, by all of that. Um, and I'm I'm also in the European Academy for Occupational Health Psychology and very much interested there at a policy level, because I think if we are talking about supporting individuals in the workplace, we also need to look at some of the bigger picture stuff that happens at a national and even an international level as well. Great. There's some fantastic stuff in there. And um, we're going to be having some upcoming conversations about more systemic approaches to things as well. So it's great to have that in there. Um, if we start off with, I guess, a really simple question, what is a healthy workplace and what is it that... that uh, that a healthy workplace looks like or what, what makes a healthy workplace? So I think a healthy workplace is really quite a, a general statement. And if you want to consider it very uh, simplistically, it's basically you're saying it's an environment where individuals go in and that allows them to be healthy. And that could be healthy from a psychological point of view, uh, but also from a physical point of view. What you want is for individuals to go into work and not have to come out injured or sick or unhealthy, essentially. Uh, but you can also broaden it up and, and to look at other aspects and say, actually, a, a healthy workplace is one which allows or facilitates an individual to achieve or do what they want to be, uh, what, to, what they want to, sorry, what they want to do or what they want to be. And that can be quite broad. I think we often think that a healthy workplace is something which gives someone meaning and purpose. And if, if your workplace allows you to do that, then that's great and that's fantastic. But maybe for you, if the workplace is somewhere that all you need is, is a wage that allows you to pay for your you know, your living costs or to cover things that you have for your family or allows you to pursue interests um, outside of work, then that could also be a healthy work environment. Um, but you could also then extrapolate that even further up and, and to look at it from an organizational point of view and say, actually, a, a healthy workplace um, looks after individuals outside of the workplace as well. And that could, again, be physically or mentally, but also their development. So you are talking about maybe building people up and giving them opportunities to develop that might actually help them outside of work or perhaps even in careers or in the career 
further down the, the line. Uh, and then you could take one final step up and, and look at it more from a systems, from a community perspective and say, actually, healthy work environments get involved with not only the, the lives of their uh, individual workers, but also their families and the communities that they're embedded in. We hear a lot about how organizations and workplaces can get involved in the health of their local communities and their neighborhoods, uh, but also other things like sustainability, environmental issues uh, and education as well. So there's lots of way, layers in terms of how you can explore this. Um, in basically what a healthy workplace is. Yeah, that's cool. There's some really, really interesting things in there. And and I like the, the sweep from the individual simplistic objectives of, in, of, of our people on their own through the organization, through the community and up to the societal level. There's a, a great swathe of things in there. Do you find when you look at healthy workplaces that that you see real consistent impacts on individuals based on the way that organizations or workplaces work? Or do you tend to find that even within uh, set organizations that you get clusters of different uh, levels of health of the individuals in there in this context of health that you speak about? Yeah, I think you, it's, it's the latter. So you'll see uh, a lot of variation uh, even within organizations. And it could be because you've got a large organization and uh, they've got different pockets in terms of how they practice. Uh, I do a lot of work with the NHS and we often talk about having good practices and, and bad practices. And within a single hospital, you've got some departments which are very well run and others which are, uh, you know, really horrendous places to work, for example. Um, and, and I think so you've got the system that, that is actually different for the individual as well. But then also you've got individuals and what we bring to the table, or what we bring into the working environment. And that could be how we interact with the people around us. So we have a direct impact on our colleagues, our supervisors on our subordinates, but also in terms of us individually, um, psychologically, we have individual differences, whether that's things like biology or our physical health or mental health, um, but also psychological states, things like resilience and self-efficacy and, and optimism. Uh, and all of that basically interacts. So it's very difficult to say from a top-down perspective, this is what you have to do or this is what a healthy workplace looks like because it does actually vary. Yeah. And, and underlying all of this is... Um... I, based on my interpretation, a premise that we're looking to improve the health of the individuals in, in this broader definition of health. In the work that you do and in your exploration of this, are you looking to maximize that or is there an optimal level? I know we can't really put numbers on it, but but where on that, that swathe of, of health for the individuals in society do you see organizations desiring to, to get to? Is it about 100%? Is it about 80%? Is, does that type of thinking come into it at all or is that just me? going down a rabbit hole? Well, um, I, I don't think it necessarily go, we go down that route per se. Um, I think then we're talking about well-being, essentially being on a continuum and having sort of a, a very high-level functioning individual. And I think yeah. well-being is quite, is such a broad construct that it's it's very difficult to say that someone has a specific score on this um, because my understanding of well-being or my desire for well-being could be different to, to yours. I might be interested mm -hmm. in saying, actually, it's about physical well-being. I want to be able to to uh, you know, run a marathon in three and a half hours, then you might not yeah. be interested in, in that whatsoever. For someone else, it might be something more spiritual uh, or something more purposeful. So I don't think you can have that comparison um, from, right. from, from that point of view. And I think fundamentally, when we then talk about, well, how do we, what do we want for our individuals? It's more of saying, well, um, what do they want? And, and, and understanding how we can support the different desires and intentions that our employees have from an organization's point of view, we might be looking at things like uh, 
objective metrics, things like absence rates and things like that, to say, well, we want to reduce sickness absence rates, we want to reduce levels of presenteeism or turnover, because all these are probably indicators that well-being might be poor. Um, yeah. More positive manifestations might be things like, well, you know, how long people stay, um, how quickly people progress within the, the organization or, or scores around job satisfaction or, or work engagement, if these are things that that you are you are collecting but i don't think there is a there is a uh, yeah necessarily an optimal level and again because it varies so much from context to context yeah interesting i was just curious about I'm curious about whether you know maximizing or, or or where we were we're heading with that um what are some of the the things that prevent healthy workplaces from coming about what are some of the enemies or challenges that you get in that space I think that to broadly separate them into sort of two areas, the one is saying that is lack of understanding of why this is important, uh, why the well-being of our uh, of our workforce is important. And again, you could create many different arguments around that. And fundamentally, I think there is an ethical and moral argument. I don't think anyone should go into work and come out of work more unhealthy than than they went in. Uh, mm. You know, when I first started out, I always used to think that actually everyone had a right to be healthy and happy in the workplace. And actually, um, I don't think we need to necessarily force happiness on everybody. It's, it's perfectly OK for you to go to work. And, and if you want to feel miserable or, or you want to just be content at work, that's OK. I don't think we need to be going down the route of creating a culture where we're all uh, happy, clappy and all that sort of stuff, because that's not right um, for everyone. Um and also why it's important then it's, it's thinking about, well, when we go back to the wider system, um, I always think that it's a public health argument on, on why having healthy workplaces are important. When I started my training or, or work in psychology, as, as many people who do an undergrad degree in psychology, the intention was to become a clinical psychologist. And with a lot of my earlier work and, and clinical placements, um, I realized that we were working with individuals who were pretty much um, so far down the line that they had very little hope of reintegrating back into society and i found that quite concerning and i felt that actually if we were able to intervene and support individuals um, further upstream earlier along in their journeys that actually they will have a much better prognosis in terms of um, being able to 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 live their lives um, healthily maybe even happily that's what they want um, and and not then have to go all the way down and, and end up in a in a psych ward um, but we spent therefore so much of our time in and around work that, that I think that's important. It's almost a public health argument as to why we need to be having uh, healthy uh, workplaces. Um, but with a lot of organizations, there's a second argument, which is a business case around there, where generally speaking, there is uh, considerable evidence saying that there is some relationship between the well-being of your workforce and things like performance. It's not, you know, it's not a, a perfectly strong correlation. Um, but there is pretty good evidence saying that there is some sort of relationship between them that ultimately, if, even if you don't care about your employees and all you care about is the bottom line, that you do need a productive uh, and uh, and healthy uh, workforce. So I think that's the that's the first thing. I think it's, it's understanding why well-being is important. Uh, and a link to that, the second one, I think the second enemy probably is, is recognizing that who is responsible for an employee's well-being. A lot of how we understand well-being and, then, and therefore how we intervene places the onus and the responsibility on the individual. If you're not healthy or if you're not well, then that's because of you. It's because you're not sleeping well, you're not exercising, uh, you've got bad genes or you've got a bad mindset, whatever that might be. And actually not recognizing what I alluded to earlier on, that we are essentially often the product of our system 
and that could be our families, it could be our workplaces, it could be um, the wider societal context as well. So that's the second enemy is recognizing that actually when we talk about well-being, it's not just the individual's responsibility, but it's a collective responsibility. And in particular, if you're an employer, you, you have a lot of sway in that and therefore you have a, you have a big responsibility. Yeah, and I think um, uh, that echoes uh, certainly what James and I talk about quite a lot on the podcast when we talk to some of the people working in the areas of responsible business and when we've talked about businesses with triple bottom lines and things about that, recognising and trying to perhaps spread the idea that it's not just about the individual worker, but there's all of us have a part to play and take responsibility. Um, you do personally a lot of research with healthcare workers. You've mentioned the NHS already. Um, what is it about that sector that you're so interested, passionate about? Um, at a very personal level, I think it's because I considered going to med school and then didn't go to med school. So I think this is my way of trying to reinsert myself back into the environment. Uh, <laughs> but more, um, but more seriously, I think we, a lot of our healthcare workers do very important work, and they're another one where if you talk about performance outcomes, um, their performance outcomes has a, a massive impact on wider society as well. Because if you are talking about um, cancer treatment outcomes or operation outcomes or mortality rates. That has an impact on on all of us, um, and therefore, when we then talk about performance, I think that's to me that's that's important. I find it a lot more interesting sometimes than if I work with some uh, more corporate organisations who are really more interested in stocks, uh, you know, share prices and bottom lines and stuff like that. Um, I feel I think there's almost a, a value in trying to improve um, both the productivity but also the well-being of our of our healthcare workers. And then the second thing is also because healthcare workers they do a lot of caring. They care for all of us. So the question is, who's caring for our carers? And because of that, I, again, feel like there's almost a responsibility to go back and, and give them some additional support in terms of what, what, they, are, what they are doing. Yeah. And, um, and probably never been a period, certainly for a little while, that it's been more relevant to the wider population as well. So we're recording this in the summer of 2020. And I guess that asks, uh, leads the question, what's worker well-being like in the UK healthcare sector generally and more specifically in 2020? Well, I think, um, well, up to this point, if we talk about everything that happened before the coronavirus, it wasn't looking good, to be honest, um, depending on how you look uh, at the data, anything so between 30 uh, to 45% of doctors and nurses are probably at any point struggling with um, elements of their mental health. Uh, and that is quite a concerning statistic. And everything that we've seen, that pattern, um, both in terms of prevalence rates and levels of poor mental health has been increasing or had, had been increasing up to this point. And all the factors that contribute to that, uh, things like high patient work, uh, patient loads, uh, lack of resources, long working hours, the pressures that they face, uh, that, that, that healthcare workers uh, face, they've progressively been increasing over the last decade. Um, and I think that's the most worrying thing is not only are they high, but they were on course to be even higher. And that was all pre-pandemic. And with everything going on right now, I think it's a very interesting position to be in because early indications suggest that, um, yeah, we, we, well, the reality is we don't actually have a lot of good quality data at this point to give us an accurate picture of what actually is going on because we're only a, a few months into the pandemic. But all the things that we learned from 
previous pandemics in other parts of the world suggest that actually things will probably get a lot worse, both directly because of the pandemic. So you'll have things like um, healthcare workers being uh, experiencing more psychological trauma, more psychological strain, because everything that's been going on in the last few months, so there's the manifestation of that. Then there's also concerns because the NHS, many parts of the NHS has essentially been put on pause for the last three or four months. So um, whenever that resumes, some of that has already resumed, the corresponding workload has gone through the roof or, or is expected to go through the roof. And that would put additional pressures on, on healthcare workers as well. Uh, and I think more importantly, there's a lot of uncertainty. There is uncertainty about, is there going to be a second wave, a third wave? How long will this last? Uh, what's going to happen in terms of resources and funding that the NHS might get? How is the public going to respond? And all of that is just going to compound the pressures that a lot of healthcare workers are, are facing. Yeah, um, that certainly sounds a little bit scary, but also makes a lot of sense given the sort of even public indicators we've seen prior COVID, prior to COVID about some of the mental well-being of, of our healthcare workers that have even sort of made it as far as the news. Um, in your, in some of your research, you kind of group factors into individual and organisational, or you talk about different levels. How, how are they different? What is, um, how do they show up as different within the workplace? Well, I think there's a, there's a very useful model in trying to think about uh, how we might understand the factors that contribute to well-being, but actually also how we might intervene when it comes to well-being. Uh, and this, this model is basically called the igloo model. And basically, we, we ask people to build igloos. Uh, and what we're saying is there are different levels. You've got the individual, you've got the group, and then you've got the leader, and then you've got the organization. So you've got all different factors and antecedents at these different levels. Um, at the individual level will be things like someone's biology, um, but also their psychological states. As a psychologist, often we might work with things like um, someone's level of resilience or optimism or self-efficacy, things like that. All that's quite important. Uh, and then at the organization um, level or the group level, we talk about, well, that wider workplace environment. I think in one of your previous podcasts, you talk and you, you've introduced and defined psychosocial working conditions. Uh, which basically is how workplaces are designed, organized, and managed. And they refer to what we call job demands, which are all the, the negative and bad things in the workplace, things like being bullied, having a high workload, working long work, having long working hours, being in an emotionally demanding job. Uh, and then you've got job resources, which are, to put it simply, all the good things in the workplace, things like being supported by your colleagues, by your managers, having control, having autonomy over your workplaces. So all of that are some of the different um, yeah, factors that contribute to someone's well-being. But crucially, what we find is, although all of that is important, we find much stronger effects for things at the, the, the group, the leader, and the organization level, so that demands and those resources. So basically saying that if we want to intervene and support someone's uh, health and well-being, we should really be focusing more on those group level, those organizational level factors. Because if you only focus on the individual, you're actually ignoring what is probably a lot stronger and more important in affecting someone's well-being. So I've got a question for you. I mean, quite often when we hear stories and narratives about, um, you know, working conditions in organizations in, in, um, in the parts of the world that I hear those stories about, what people tend to say is if we had more resources, if we had more money, if we had more staff, that would lead to a fundamental shift in 
um, I guess, for well-being and, and uh, efficiency of those organizations. What's your view on it? Some of the things that you've spoken about there don't necessarily feel like uh, they're directly related to financial input. What, what's your view on the role of money in this? Well, money is always uh, important if you've got infinite or you've got loads of it, then that would just allow you to create more resources or generate more resources which are, are more supportive. Uh, and I think that will always have to be part of the conversation. But having said that, I think lack of money or lack of resources doesn't mean things uh, cannot change. And often when we talk about managing, basically what we're saying is how can we try and reduce demands and how can we try and increase resources? Um, and often that comes back to how well a team or a department or an organization is run. Even within the NHS, you know, I've done sessions and worked with teams where there hasn't been more funding, but people have come together and said, how can we be more efficient in what we do? Because in us being more efficient, then we are actually reducing the demands that we face. And what that looks like will vary considerably from one department or one context to another. It could be something as simple as how we change the, the, the flow of how paperwork is being done in this department. Uh, we, we change the flow in terms of how often we communicate or how we communicate with each other. Um, I've got a one of my favorite examples in the NHS is of, of a, an emergency room, emergency department and one of the hospitals on the on the south coast of England who basically needed, were struggling with staff turnover. The, the, the consultants and senior doctors were, were turning over because the working environment was just too difficult. They wanted more money um, to hire more staff, but the hospital wasn't, wasn't able to give it to them. So they said, well, what can we do? And the problem was actually with shift patterns. And what they decided to do was to go and change it to essentially a, an annualized hour uh, mm. system. So rather than saying, I work... 10 hours a week or something like that. I say over the course of a year, I work so many hours. Um, and then you could pick and choose when in the year you would go and work. And what that actually created is it allowed a lot of um, consultants who perhaps had working lives um, or home lives, which weren't conducive to the existing structure to come in and say, right, I'm only going to work weekends um, because I've got, uh, you know, I separated from my spouse and I, uh, on the weekend, my kids go to my husband and therefore I can work weekends. So I'm only going to work weekends. Whereas, and then under the previous model, that wasn't possible. They had, um, you know, a, a consultant who was with the British Antarctic service and, and uh, she would disappear for three or four months at a time because she would be on the South, South um, in the summer months because she would be on the South Pole. But in the summer months, she could come back, take her year's uh, workload and put it in the summer months and work throughout a period and that meant that her colleagues who in the summer months wanted to go on summer vacation uh, with their families were able to take that time off um, and I think that was a, a, a powerful way of a group of doctors saying we are going to change the way we work without asking for more resources and actually their senior board of directors were quite resistant to the idea and they just said do you know what we're just going to do it because we think it's going to work and the implication of that was they were able to retain staff. They were able to attract staff from other hospitals who were who wanted to work in that environment. And there's a knock-on effect where they then reduced the number of, of locum, of temporary doctors that they were hiring and actually generated savings. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, it's pretty cool. When in, in the last place I worked, which was a large bank, we looked to do a similar thing with particularly call center staff and, and sort of semi-seasonal staff. And, and that was starting... 
um, as I left, but I don't know. I don't know what the outcomes were. But based on what you say, I can absolutely see how how powerful that is. Um, another large sort of narrative that I hear about work where we are at the minute is there's been uh, sort of a continual decline in, in worker productivity is the type of headline that I'll read from time to time. Do you see any sort of relationship between that narrative and that story and the, the healthiness of workplaces that we see? Is there anything related in that as, as larger trends at all or any reflections on this? Are you saying that uh, productivity is going down and, and that might correspond with well-being going down? Potentially, yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of exploring if there's a link between them or, I mean, or the other way, yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, there, there is some evidence of a relationship between well-being and, and productivity. Um, but I wonder, I'm just sort of thinking out aloud over here, that when we talk about productivity going down, I just think the world is changing. And how mm-hmm. we understand what productivity is, is also changing. And I wonder also whether we've almost peaked to a certain extent in terms of uh, what we can expect out of people or, or organizations yeah. or, or societies. And we've had, you know, tremendous amount of growth in terms of productivity outputs and maybe it's not always sustainable to carry a, carry on in the in, in the same trajectory um, and i also think that again the world of work is changing because of this emphasis on productivity a lot of organizations not a lot but many organizations are, are changing working environments and conditions for individuals and saying well how can we place the onus and the risk on individuals as opposed mm. to on the organization if you look at zero-hour contracts, if you talk about the digitalized um, um, economy and uh, precarious work, all that risk is being placed on individuals. And and, uh, and I don't think we can expect the same returns around that. Yeah, interesting. It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating space to, to be in at the minute. Um, if, we, if we kind of narrow the focus from um, some of the, the larger work you've done in the NHS and uh, some of those more societal things, and then if we take it down to... Um, you know, maybe smaller organizations, smaller businesses. Um, can you think of anything that might be common challenges or common things that, that people are getting wrong there that might be undermining the healthiness of, of those workplaces? I think um, when it comes to small businesses, um, of course, most organizations are small businesses. Uh, it, it comes back to this lack of understanding. Many don't understand why well-being is important and they also don't understand how to support um, their their company, their organization, or, or their colleagues in terms of well-being. And I think there's often this thing of saying that, well, we haven't got the resources to buy in consultants or services or employee assistance programs or occupational health and so forth. Um, but I think the most important message that I often give to smaller organizations is that actually it doesn't have to be very complicated. Um, and most of well-being actually is common sense. Uh, We don't need large-scale management consultants coming and saying, this is how you have an effective organization. Even when I do work with um, big banks or the NHS and stuff like that, you go in and I often say, I'm not here to tell you how to do your job or what your problems are. I'm just here to facilitate a conversation. And and you can do that in small teams as well. If if you're running a shop or a small uh, legal practice or accountancy or whatever that is, is have a conversation with the people in your team and in your company and say, well, what are... What are our problems? What are we struggling with? And what can we change? And what can we do differently to to um, create a more conducive, a healthier, a better working environment? And sometimes with small organizations, you may have more flexibility as well. Mm. Um, and then correspondingly, I think in the last sort of five years, there's been a lot more attention and focus by 
a number of bigger organizations in the space. So the Health and Safety Executive, for example, uh, the Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, the CIPD, who are developing tools, uh, many for free, um, toolkits which can be used by, by individuals uh, or small organizations, um, sometimes specifically for small organizations, which, which, um, which facilitate these conversations as well. Do you, do you feel that, or, or what's your experience of the self-awareness of individuals in relation to their own well-being in organizations? Do you feel that, that people have um, the language or, or you know, the, the colors to paint their current state of well-being in organizations and to understand cause and effect? Or, or do you think that they feel um, sort of buffeted by what's around them without understanding it? Or if that's even a fair question for you. I think, I think we are getting a lot better um, as a society in general. But I think most people probably will still struggle. There is um, struggling in terms of, well, how we actually really feel in terms of being honest about it, um, struggling in terms of understanding what the factors are that contribute to our better well-being or poorer well-being. But I think there's also been a big movement around, uh, well, in, in well-being more generally, uh, and that could be things around mindfulness, around yoga, um, about bettering ourselves. And one of the sort of narratives and shifts and maybe some of the positive things coming out of this pandemic, I think there has been a lot more emphasis on individuals' well-being. Uh, again, resources have often been made available many times for free for people to engage with, and that has given uh, a language and a platform for people to discuss and talk about it. But I do think that, generally speaking, it still is lacking for, for many. And I think more importantly, a lot of people are able and willing to talk about when things are going well, but they are not talking about when things are not going well. We are still putting on a facade to say we're, we're um, you know, I'm fine, I'm doing yoga, I'm going for a walk, I'm doing mindfulness, but actually not saying that I'm, I'm actually struggling and this is difficult. Um, and I think we need to do a lot more around that part. Yeah, and I think so probably James and I would agree that that's been our experience of working with various clients and businesses over the last few months that they are getting. There's been a, a more comfortable approach from senior leaders about talking about this stuff because we've all been under the same sort of restrictions, I guess, if you will. And so there's some commonality even where people have got different personal lived experiences. And um, one of the things that I worry about, because I'm the pessimist on this podcast, is that we are about to go through what I suspect will be a decline in employment figures and possibly quite a significant recession. Um, and that there may be a shift in balance of power between employee and, and organisation as, as kind of jobs become more sort of difficult to come by. Um, do, you, do, you think, do you think it's possible that that might mean that people get less confident about talking about their well-being issues because it seems to go back a little bit and people start seeing it as something that, oh, I don't want that hassle of someone who's got challenges, um, which we know is wrong and not a great way of approaching it, but, but sometimes we see in, in periods of lower employment. Does that, does that worry you or do you think we've made proper progress? No, to be honest, it, it does worry me um, around there. We know stigma is still very prevalent in 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 the UK, in many parts of I would say around the world, really, and in all places of work. And anything, uh, if you're in a precarious role at work, anything which you think might jeopardize your chances, you will probably try not to disclose. So I think the onus is on everyone else to try and facilitate a conversation and a narrative to say, A, it's okay to disclose, uh, B, it's not going to be held against you. But also, 
going back, I think when we started this podcast, a lot of the work I do now has increasingly been at a policy level, at a national level, because we need to lobby and work with governments and uh, sector leaders to to make sure that we are looking after the people who can't, who haven't got a voice, essentially. Um, because if we're not doing that, then people are going to feel that they can be taken advantage of or that others feel that they can take advantage of others as well. Um, I mean, I'm hopeful because, yeah, I'm not going to end on a negative note. I'm, I'm hopeful because there are a lot of people in this space who are trying to do a lot of good things. And I think that the more that we can focus on that, then there is hope that we can try and create that. But I think there needs to be awareness on this because even before the pandemic, um, like I said, precarious work has increased. Um, many sectors, individuals are feeling very insecure in their roles and that's before the pandemic already. So I think there needs to be a wider discussion around how workplaces are designed, organized and, and managed and, and who holds the risk, you know, who is the risk being placed on organizations and, and the larger system or is it placed on the individuals? And increasingly we're seeing it being placed on the individuals and that's the, that's the narrative we need to change and that's the decisions that we need to change. I am. Um... I would thoroughly agree with that is pretty much all I can say to that, that, that response. Um, last question from me, um, and you might have given us a teaser there. Um, if you could change one thing about the way that we are currently working in our modern working practices that you think would help improve, uh, improve well-being generally, um, what would you change? I think the... It's, it's having a simple conversation uh, or an opportunity for a simple conversation between an individual and someone in the line management team to just say, you know, how are you doing? What can we change? How can we better support you? And, and to generally mean that because that simple conversation can go a very long way if we actually follow up on that. Yeah. Great. Great. So, managers out there. Yeah, I was going to say that feels like a, a fantastic way to, to have a bit of a closing message, which is that everyone who's in a leadership or management position can do that. They can just go and ask somebody genuinely, how are you doing? What can we do better? And listen and to go in with the right intentions. And it feels like that can make some difference. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, and I just thought maybe I'll just signpost very quickly. Um, you know, there's, there's a, uh, there's a team, I think affinity health, um, sorry, affinity work, health and wellbeing hub. It's a, if you just Google that, you come up with a whole list of resources that, uh, individuals have collated, which are evidence-based practices on, on how to support well-being in the workplace. Some of it for large organizations, some of it for individuals, many of it for small teams and, and small organizations. So anyone who wants to try and do something in this space and uh, wants some additional support, that's a really good place to start. Cool. That's perfect. We'll share that when we share the podcast. Um, unfortunately, we are getting out of time, as we usually do. Uh, just as we wrap up, though, is there anything that people can do to learn a little bit more about you and, and what you do in your research or anything else you'd like to signpost people towards? Sure. I mean, uh, probably the best place to f follow me in terms of what I'm doing. Uh, I run a, my own Twitter account. So Kevin T-O-R-H. So it's Kevin T-E-O-H-R-H. -H. Um, if you look me out on Twitter and then uh, get in touch there, or if not, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure having you um, and uh, a great conversation. So really interesting. So thank you very much for me. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jane. Okay, so that was our conversation with Kevin, and you're back in the room with us. I thought we covered some great stuff there. Um, I loved the, the sort of sweep of what was covered from the individual and their role in well-being through to the impacts of well-being on organizations and others and communities and society. I mean, I, I, I love all that stuff, and I love that the systemic approach to it. And um, 
and a reflection of some of the different things that we can do. Um, did you have any key takeaways or reflections that you thought were worth shouting out, Jay? Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things that really struck me. One is um, I really enjoy it when anyone says money isn't the only solution. And I think his example about shift patterns is really powerful, particularly for people where money is not the significant differentiator or can't be for a role. So I think, for example, doctors are employed in multiple places around the country, in multiple organizations. They 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 have a a pay, dif- you know, there is a scale of pay and it will change from place to place, but it's it's within a boundary. And quite often they're relatively well-paid jobs so relative to the, the population. So therefore differentiating differentiating a workplace based on the flexibility with which you can work or your choice of how you approach work so their shift patterns I think is a really good lesson for organizations and I think coming out of where we are at the moment where people are working remotely not by choice I think organizations will begin to recognize that they can attract people and keep people longer where they offer them a different way of setting their hours days weeks shift patterns whatever it is so that is absolutely one and I love that idea and I think the second thing that I took away um which is not so much of a takeaway as a confirmation bias James because it's my favorite project is uh the fact that um there needs to be a conversation about whose role and what the organization's role is in worker and population well-being because if if the workplace is such a significant factor in the general public's well-being, then organizations, by by definition almost, need to recognize they have a responsibility or at least a role, if not a responsibility. Yeah. And, and you know, I couldn't agree with that more, right? I mean, um, I, I uh, in my own mind, at least, and in speaking to some people, I, I liken worker well-being or lack thereof to an externality of an organization. I think that's all, all there is. And, and we should manage those because I think externalities undermine a lot of the, the challenges that we have. Um, one other thing that, that I quite liked on the back of that conversation was a reflection on our own ability to use language and to be open about how we're feeling and the risks around it and the, the sort of disclosure around our own well-being and, and what that's like at the minute. And I think there's, there's some powerful stuff in there about our own, I guess, slight obligation to to be transparent and to role model good behaviors in that space and, and the fact that the more people who do that um the better able we are to to influence what is acceptable and expected from a well-being perspective so i think there's some stuff to consider there as well yeah absolutely i think there's a uh shifting the norms of what is normal um and what is common behavior around disclosure when you're feeling healthy and well uh, yourself, or maybe you have experience of it, I think is really crucial because um, in some senses, whilst no one should have an obligation to disclose their experiences, absolutely when you do, you shift people's perspective about you and about what is normal. And I've got like air quotes, right? Because it's not normal, it's yeah. common. But yeah. um, I think that's really important. Cool. All right, well, let's leave it there. Um, it was a pleasure as ever. Um, so I guess until next time, it's just worth calling out. You can check out our website, www.worldofwork.io. Um, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We've got various different accounts. We've got at the Wow Podcast. I'm at JG Carrier. We've got at Janie underscore S. Um, and just stay in touch, get in touch, let us know what's on your mind, and we will catch up with you soon. Yeah, and a final from me, if you would like to support what we do in democratizing learning for the general population, you can go to www worldofwork.io forward slash support. Great. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Hi. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.